0: Today, I am joined by Ethan Pitts. Ethan, thank you for
1: being here. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you're someone who knows quite a few different subject areas, from environmentalism to revolution, Middle Eastern studies, all, all different types. But given the world today and how much we care about the future of our energy and topics like this, I want to dive into your knowledge of nuclear fission and nuclear energy generally. So, really, before we get into the specifics, can you just explain what that means when someone says nuclear energy? Are they saying fission? Are they saying fusion? Are they talking about Chernobyl? What exactly is being talked about here?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess before we start, we kind of can talk about where we get our energy from and kind of the historical um, foundation of humans, you know, generating electricity and stuff. Um, Kind of the the fundamental thing or the fundamental method how we get electricity is really through a turbine. Um, There's heat that generates um, steam in water, basically we're boiling water that creates steam that's spinning a turbine um, that is then generating electricity. Um, And for the majority of the time that we've been doing that, we've been burning coal or wood or gas or something like that. Um, And the heat from the fire from burning generates that steam. Um, And then when we start to get into nuclear energy, we're not burning a brick of uranium. Um, The technology is nuclear fission is what it's called, where we're taking this, um, this element uranium and we're splitting its atoms. And so the atoms, um, that's what f- their fission is, is that you're taking an, an atom and you're breaking it. And that in itself creates an enormous amount of heat. Um, and then that is used to then generate um, steam, which then spins a turbine and generates the electricity. So that's, that's where um, nuclear fission Um, comes in. There's also the concept of nuclear fusion, um, which is kind of a different version of nuclear energy um, that we don't have um, in real operation right now, just because um, there's a lot more that goes into kind of taking atoms and fusing them together. Um, That's all over my head. I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know that we're not um, quite there yet. and The majority of um, I'm pretty sure that all of our nuclear energy is from fission. Okay. And and
0: before we dive into the uh, details and even potentially the history, depending on what your knowledge base is, how do we get all of this heat and energy from fission?
1: So it's really, it's really just the physics at that point that you're, you're taking, um, you have like, there's lots of different reactor designs and stuff. Um, But what you're doing is you're putting these, um, elements in a reactor. um, And they interact with each other. So um, you have kind of uranium cores that are in these things. um, And there's usually a kind of a moderator. So there's something like heavy water reactor, you may have heard the term heavy water or something. Um, And the water acts as kind of an atomic mediator, um, which allows it kind of helps to control the reaction a little bit, but it's a it's a nuclear reaction where there's atoms that are bouncing around and colliding with each other and they break. And because of like at that atomic level, the breaking of the atom um, is the, the source of the heat there.
0: So when I hear nuclear reaction, my inclination is to be moderately fearful. I think again, Chernobyl or even nuclear bombs. But from my understanding, this could be a potential valuable uh, energy source like solar or or wind energy or something like that how does this play in to this energy field uh renewable energy field if that describes it accurately or or really where does
1: nuclear fit Mm -hmm. so i would put i would put nuclear energy i wouldn't put in renewable renewable um, energy because you're you're you are going in and you're mining uranium um and uranium is, you know, it's elemental, it doesn't necessarily I'm. it'll show up in, you know, however many million years. Um, so there is kind of a finite um, amount of uranium there. And then, of course, there's the environmental downside of that. You have to go into a mountain and uh, dig it out. Um, but no, you, you did mention that there's, you know, kind of this moderate um, fear that shows up at first and words like Chernobyl obviously come to mind and um, and nuclear weapons, right. Um, I think that those are all you know, valid concerns, especially given that are that the modern nuclear program and really kind of the entire history of um, humans interacting with nuclear power is it starts with um, nuclear weapons programs, and uh, countries trying to develop a new kind of bomb. So I think that that um, is definitely a valid concern that we can talk about. So let's talk
0: about it. How did we get from nuclear bombs to nuclear energy? Where is the bridge here? Because it seems to me like anytime we make a weapon, it doesn't just become an energy source. Someone obviously had to research this and and figure out how this happened. But what was our incentive to research it? It's not every day you make a weapon and then think, oh, this could be an energy source. How did we cross that bridge, if you follow my question? yeah
1: no i think i got you um yeah it's a good question so basically we had to um we're in the process of making these weapons um and there's a lot of scientists that are involved with it and there's a lot of people who understand that um the whole goal of making the nuclear weapon the nuclear bomb was um well at this point it's the atomic bomb um because there's atomic bombs and there's hydrogen bombs hydrogen bombs are more powerful but we don't have to focus on that now. Um, But the the atomic bombs, the whole point of them was to um, create a weapon that could release an enormous amount of energy. So right from the get go, um, we we have the understanding that this kind of nuclear reaction creates an incredible amount of energy. Um, You know, and then tragically, we see um, that the two bombs dropped um, on Japan, um, you know, killed hundreds of thousands of people because of The sheer amount of force and energy and then you know the um, side effects of radiation sickness and everything. We didn't fully understand all of this. Um, There was a US general, I think it was Curtis LeMay, who went before Congress and talked about how radiation sickness was actually a pleasant way to die. Um, And this is back in the 40s and 50s, where we're not entirely sure um, everything that um, goes on there. We can look at that statement and just, you know, it's tragically laughable. Um, what it is now, especially that we've seen what happens um, to people who are exposed to high levels of radiation. Um, But I mean, the point is that right from the get go, we realized that um, nuclear reactions generate an incredible amount of energy. Um, And then you're coming out of World War II um, and you see, you know, there's kind of the new world order uh, in a sense that, you know, United States and the uh, Soviet Union are these two big superpowers. Um, the United States is, both of them have transfer, transformed into um, incredible industrial um, powerhouses in a relatively short amount of time compared to Europe, Europe and um, Asia, which was still developing. Um, and there's a new push for um, expansion and um, all of this development in industry and technology and communications and, um, you know, building um, urban sprawl in the united states and expanding all of this needs energy some um, and we're coming out of this new scientific experience of building an atomic weapon and we can see that okay there's a lot of energy here um, now what we need to do is make sure that we can harness it instead of setting off a bomb somewhere let's create a different kind of nuclear reaction and um, make sure that we can control it so the the kind of nuclear reaction that goes on inside of a reactor is not the same that um goes on when a nuclear bomb is detonated it's a different process atoms are still being split but the idea in a nuclear reactor is it's much more controlled um, and um it doesn't explode like a nuclear bomb does
0: and that's something i've always wondered is how we could take something so powerful are really more importantly so explosive so immediate and contain that not because we have a giant chamber with huge explosions going on inside but in fact something else is happening what what is that something else do you know much about
1: um, what exactly is different between those reactions yeah so. In the in the atomic bomb there are kind of two different atomic um, bomb designs there's um, little man and fat boy um, or was it fat man and little boy <laughs> anyways um, one of the, the the bomb design that I'm familiar with is basically imagine a cylinder that's in a bomb casing. You've got a chunky uranium at one end um, and another chunk of re- uranium at the other end. Um, it's programmed that at a certain altitude you have an altimeter that measures it at a certain altitude, a an actual bomb, a charge, basically bullet fires um, and it um, fires that piece of uranium into another one, which sparks that reaction. Um, and then it's a, at that point, it's an uncontrolled because there's no moderator, there's no um, control rods um, that can slow down and can um, control that nuclear reaction, and it's just boom, you know, that's the immediateness of it is that there's no safeguards, there's nothing. The point of that reaction is to get as much energy and explosive force out of it as you can. Meanwhile, in a nuclear reactor, um, everything's very laid out. Um, you've got, you know, fuel rods, and you've got control rods, and all sorts of things, and they're in a kind of a mediator. Um, and when you add kind of the more fuel rods, they interact with each other, and you can get more um energy just by the atoms bouncing around in the moderator um, and obviously the more that they interact the more heat that they generate um and if you want to slow that down you can raise fuel rods you can lower control rods um, and the whole idea there is you're just changing the amount of energy that is um being absorbed by control rods and um you know heat generation stuff like that so that's kind of the difference between those two
0: So how safe really is a nuclear reactor? Because this strikes me as a situation where, look at autonomous vehicles. If you have one car accident in a self-driving car, it seems by the news to be a failure, that autonomous vehicles are too dangerous. Yet, as far as I'm aware, a leading cause of death is driving our vehicles. So the standard is so much higher for autonomous vehicles than it is for normal driving. Do you think it's the case that because of these stigmas around nuclear weapons, that the standard for nuclear power plants to be accepted is
1: similarly so much higher? I think that there is definitely a lower or a higher standard for nuclear energy. I don't think it necessarily is because of nuclear weapons. Um, I think it's really because of the big nuclear accidents. Um, you know, there's there's been kind of 30 high level, around 30 high level um, significant nuclear accidents um, since the inception around 30, um, two of which um, kind of dominate that this discussion a little bit. One of them is, uh, well, I guess the most recent one is the accident of Fukushima Daiichi um, in 2011 in Japan, um, and then kind of the big, the boogeyman of the nuclear industry um, would be um, Chernobyl in 1986 in the Soviet union. Um, I think that those two accidents and, um, to a lesser extent, the other ones that aren't as significant, um, are the ones that kind of put the stigma on the industry. Do you think the stigma is justified? Um, I do not, I don't think, I think that there are more factors at play, um, that a lot of people don't tend to consider. Um, for example, um, we look at Chernobyl. Um, what happens there? Um, you have a lot of—it's like a perfect storm. Here um, takes place in a really tense period in the Cold War. Um, you have the Soviet Union, um, which is incredibly concerned about its appearance. Um, the The Communist Party of the Soviet Union has a very uh, an absolute control over the government there. Um, And it's very concerned about its image. It's very concerned about its political legitimacy. Um, And there's a security apparatus called the KGB, which kind of enforces that. Um, In Chernobyl, that kind of reactor design is called an RMBK reactor. Um, It doesn't, it's a a uniquely Soviet-designed reactor in the 1950s. Um, It doesn't use heavy water, and it's a different, uh, it uses kind of a pressure tank it uses light water, which is not as good of a mediator. Um, And this design um, is approved by the um, center in Russia, the Institute, the, um, I think it's the Chirakov Institute. Um, I probably butchered that, but anyways um, it's approved by this Institute, which is a, um, a powerful government body. And therefore it gets a designation of state secret. And so, any discussion about the reactor is not permitted, and so the, it's built with the design flaws um, that nobody really is um, either aware of or they can't really talk about it. They can't raise the issue because it's a state secret, uh, and therefore it's protected under espionage rules in the Soviet Union, and the KGB um, kind of keeps it all on lock. Um, and so, in the case of that reactor exploding, um, and again, the, rea- the reactor itself actually exploded. But it it wasn't the same kind of explosion as a nuclear reactor, you know, Chernobyl and the the Ukrainian town of Pripyat, which is right next to it, they're not leveled. Um, The actual building that the reactor was in is not destroyed. You can you can see it still. Um, It was more of a pressure explosion at that point. But what happened is it's just a series of design flaws um, that were triggered in in kind of a midnight test that they were trying to run on safety. and it was getting it down to a low power, which this RMBK reactor was not designed to operate very well at that kind of low power stage. And so it just kind of runs away from controllers hands at that point and it explodes. Um, and then I think the more dangerous part is kind of the government reaction at that point, because the the Soviet um, kind of civil defense organization was pretty quick to say, hey, we need to get people out of here. We need to tell people what's going on. Um, and we need to get them out of here we need to evacuate um, these these people and then uh, you have communist party officials and kgb officers who kind of you know we don't need to worry about this we need to just you know go about things as normal it's all good and so because of that you had a lot of um a lot of people that were completely unaware you know you have firefighters that show up and um are walking through rubble, and they're walking past huge chunks of um, graphite, irradiated graphite and uranium, and they don't even know what it is, because they're originally told it's just a structural fire. And so they're spraying water into um, into an open reactor, and they are literally staring into the face of um, a nuclear reaction, which you're not supposed to do. Um, and that's that that leads to, you know, radiation sickness and all sorts of bad stuff. And so I think that the stigma really comes from these accidents that are not uh, handled very well, um, particularly in the case of Chernobyl. So
0: you hear the stories of accidents like this, and obviously that makes you worry. And I'm sure you could pull these uh, statistics like this from any energy source, but a nuclear reactor meltdown certainly has a punch to it that other energy sources don't have from their failures. But at the same time, based on what you've said there is hope and if that's the case what is the path forward for nuclear energy should it be a major player in global energy or should it remain a supplemental secondary energy source
1: yeah um i i am of the school of thought that i think that it should be a major player um in human energy production. I think that there's a lot of potential there and it's demonstrated that. Um, France it generates most of its electricity through nuclear energy. Um, and and technology is just continuing to improve, right? You, We look at instances like Chernobyl and um, I think it's wrong for us to superimpose our views based on that onto um, where we look going forward because that happened, you know, 1980s, um, based on technology developed in the 1950s. It's old. Technology continues to develop all the time. Um, Even the Soviet reactors um, were updated and drastically improved after that accident. So I think that we're on a much greater path now. Um, And with that, there there's new companies that are coming out. There's a few in the United States. One of them is called New Scale, I know. that are kind of focusing on small, um, smaller nuclear reactors. Um, and I think that that is a really interesting technology and that I think that that's something that we should be looking at more and more for the future.
0: So let's play devil's advocate here. If you, quote unquote, fill a country with nuclear reactors, even with more advanced technology, as you said, decades ahead of what something like Chernobyl, uh, would have been but they let's say a very small number of them start having meltdowns even if they're smaller meltdowns if you have more reactors presumably the odds of having re uh, negative reactions is increasing even if it doesn't seem that drastic because the technologies prevent uh, vast arrays of radiation or something like that do you think there's potential for political recourse that could be damaging to the expanse of something like nuclear reactors?
1: Um, um, I do. I think I think that a lot of the political, um, well, I think already the kind of nuclear industry is kind of almost stymied by the political climate as it is right now, um, particularly because of um, what's already happened in the past few decades, especially in Fukushima Daiichi, um, we there were upwards more than a hundred reactors built between the nineteen fifties and nineteen ninety six, um, and since nineteen ninety six, there's only been one built in the United States, um, and well, yeah, and so I think that right there you kind of see something that goes on there. Um, that's primarily because of cost and money that goes into building these large reactors, but there's already been that and with the more recent pushes towards um, renewable energy um, like solar and wind, um, there's been a lot of effort um, to kind of steer the United States toward that. Um, President Biden has his um, 100% clean energy drive by 2035 and that relies heavily on renewable energy. Um, And interestingly enough, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry itself has donated or invested millions of dollars into Solar and wind technology. And so it's the, I think the political climate is stacked against nuclear in a way, at least in the United States, um, but also kind of the um, economic side with all these other businesses.
0: So even if politics was in its favor, why would one choose nuclear fission over solar energy, wind energy, or hydroelectric energy?
1: Um, I would say because it, has a um, it has less of an environmental impact? You, you know, you're you're still mining. You know, it's not a zero impact um, energy source here, but um, generates an incredible amount of energy. More, um, you know, if you're if you're looking at how much land a reactor takes up, um, takes up, you know, far 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 less um land per unit of energy that it's generating you know you don't have solar farms that um generate there's a there's a solar farm in in california um that you would need 10 times the amount of land that it takes up and it's huge um to meet the output of um south or california's last nuclear site so um we can either kind of go i mean you kind of go into this apocalyptic vision uh, vision of the future of you know all the deserts covered in um, solar panels and you know wind farms everywhere and um, dams dotting the, the countryside and kind of changing the face of the Earth. Um, or you can have nuclear energy um, in smaller ones. Obviously, I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. But um, I think that's why we would be choosing nuclear power just because uh, has less of an environmental impact.
0: Now, as a layperson, this might be a dumb question, but I'm curious. Why don't we just put it underground?
1: Um, so it's a good question. Um, I, I think that really it just would have to. Um, I think it's because it's difficult to put things underground. I'm not. I'm not sure that it, putting it underground would really change the the dynamic at all. Um, you know, and I guess if something were to happen underground, um, it wouldn't be any different if it happened up. Up. You know, higher. So I'm not sure that putting nuclear energy underground would really change the debate very much. So
0: you're saying that radiation isn't really affected in that way uh, by topsoil or or air. It works pretty much the same way if there were some kind of meltdown.
1: I mean, if there were, I think you would be dealing with a different set of consequences. Um, You know, um, if a reactor were to explode um, or meltdown and explode and um, radiation were to leak out um in a traditional reactor that's on top of the land, then you have to deal with um, radiate or radioactive material being blasted into the air. Um, and you have to deal with that and kind of a cloud of radiation that goes across. But if was one was to go off underground, um, you would have to deal with, you know potentially irradiation of water table and um, stuff like that. So, I mean we we don't test nuclear weapons underground or underwater anymore these are you know kind of cold war treaties that ban the testing of these um in the atmosphere underground and all these other things but um i think that it's just a different set of environmental problems at that point
0: so i want to pivot slightly because in this conversation so far we've mentioned ussr the cold war several times and i know you know a decent amount about um the cold war so let's just shift our conversation some i want to know your thoughts on the cold war as i said and i want to hit this one question home what changes in the world today if the cuban missile crisis turns out differently um
1: I think it's a good question it, because um, I still think that the Soviet Union would have collapsed. And so then you kind of uh, are stuck wondering the que- with the question on whether or not those missiles would have stayed in Cuba. Um, the Soviet Union was never able to um, kind of extend what what is called a nuclear umbrella. Um, Are you familiar with that term at all? Somewhat, but feel free to explain it. Yeah, so what that is, a nuclear umbrella, the United States has it, where um, we are basically extending our protection to a number of other countries. For example, um, South Korea and um, Japan are not nuclear powers, but they are protected um, with a nuclear umbrella, uh, meaning that, you know, that there is... um, you can't attack them with nuclear weapons because we would view that as an attack as well um and uh, the same is with um kind of nato countries in europe and u.s allies uh, um, around the world there um u.s missiles are stationed in europe um kind of across the continent a little bit um that showed up with the the cold war to kind of build um Put them closer to the soviet's border that's one of the reasons why the soviets sought to get them into cuba um uh, that one came from u.s missiles being stationed in turkey um, which at that point did border the soviet union um, in kind of the northeast of that country um and so the soviets felt that um, they needed to have nuclear weapons in cuba um so i'm not sure if the weapons would stay in cuba um I doubt that they really would. Um, With the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet nuclear stockpile was um, centered in um, kind of four republics in the Soviet Union. So the Russian um, Republic, the Belarusian, and the Ukrainian, and then the um, Kazakh Republic all had nuclear weapons. 1991 happens, the uh, the Soviet Union collapses, um, and we're kind of stuck um, in this limbo. So now do we have four new nuclear powers, Russia, um, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine? Um, nobody really wanted that. And so um, Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan all agreed to transfer their nuclear uh, weapons to the new Russian Federation. And so now those those three uh, countries that border Russia um, do not have nuclear weapons. So I think that something similar would have happened. Um, with with that and uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I think that the Cubans would have given up the missiles um, potentially. So it's
0: certainly fair to say that there was some economic downfall to the imperial overreach of of the Soviet Union. But I do wonder, especially for people our age who are younger, they didn't live during the Red Scare, They didn't live during the Cold War. How close were we, in your mind, to some semblance of a nuclear war?
1: I think we were incredibly close um, at multiple points, um, not just at the, uh, the in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I think that, and I think that a lot of people would agree, uh, especially people who grew up there, you know, um, who went to, um, you know, like grandparents or, um, people like that who grew up doing bomb drills and, you know, helping dad build the nuclear shelter, um, in the backyard over the summer or whatever. Um, I think that we were incredibly close, um, because you can't really put two, um, nuclear armed, um, states in a position, uh, that's that tense um, where there's kind of military forces involved there. Um, So I think that we were incredibly close. There's other close calls. Um, A few decades later, uh, the Soviet Union detected um, what they thought were missile launches, um, and it turned out to be just a computer glitch. Um, But for a while, uh, this was in the 80s, but for a a good amount of time, they thought that the United States had launched a first strike against the Soviet Union and were getting ready to launch theirs before they figured out that, okay, this is... This is a computer glitch. We don't need to worry about that. Um, So I think that we were really close. I don't think that we um, are in that level of danger. Um, And I I think there's a lot that goes into that kind of nuclear deterrence theory that we can maybe talk about, but um, I think we're a lot better off now than we were.
0: I know I'm going in somewhat of a reverse order, but let's talk about where we were. What really was the cause or the major causes of this conflict? Because unless you pay attention closely in your history classes or do your own research, you're gonna think, as an American at least, something to do with communism. We changed the Pledge of Allegiance to add under God to fight this quote-unquote atheist communist, obviously. Um, and that we had never changed that back, so that's an interesting remnant. Uh, but how do we, what what really caused this issue? Because all I hear are these stories of the vestiges of communism. Was there more at play here? Were nuclear weapons part of that issue, or were they merely a response to other problems? What happened here?
1: I think the Cold War is a culmination of, um, and a lot of people would say, that it's a culmination of kind of... of um, maybe a century and a half of ideological development um, and just greater social and economic change that happened, um, kind of sparking with the Industrial Revolution. Um, You get around the mid-1800s, a guy named Karl Marx, sure you've heard of him, um, and a guy named Friedrich Engels, um, two Germans who developed, um, you know, kind of an ideology of thought um, called Marxism. Socialism is derived in part from that, um, as well. And basically, what that, what that, you know, just crash course is, um, it's concerned about um, the struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie being the, the people who control the means of production, and then the proletariat being the worker. Um, and um, the whole idea there is to bring. Um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, meaning that the workers are the people who control the means of production and who control government. Um, And this is obviously very threatening to um, a lot of these uh, powers uh, in the world at that time. Um, Kind of the first successful socialist experiment or experiment was in the late 1800s, the Paris Commune, where um, Paris was taken over by a faction of Reds, um, who um, had control of the city for a good amount of time. Um, and it was a commune in the sense that, um, it had abolished its military and it was kind of grouped by people's militias controlled by that. Um, there was more social change, um, equality, stuff like that. That was the only one that Marx was alive for. And he actually, um, seemed to approve of that one. Um, it was then crushed by the French military. Um, but you had this rise of socialist parties in the West um, that worried a lot of um, governments, and um, it was always kind of seen as a threat. Um, I think the la- the last elected socialist in the United States in the House was um, in the early 1900s, and he had, um, what, what stands out most to me about him was that he had introduced a bill um, in the House of Representatives to abolish the United States Senate. Um, because he had viewed it that it was um, undemocratic um, and that it represented the will of the rich, um, kind of special interests groups, and he felt that it wasn't um, in line there. And so you have you have socialists who are very, um, very much vocally opposed to the system as, as it stands, um, and that's obviously worrisome. Um, his political career didn't last very long um, in the federal government. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that's kind of where it starts a little bit there, is that this rise of socialism, um, you know, in 1917, there's a um, uh, kind of, well, the, the Russian Revolution kind of happens in two stages. Um, the first, the monarchy is overthrown, and Tsar um, Nicholas II abdicates. Um, this is part of a broader context with World War I. Russia was not performing well at all. Um, they were getting decimated by the Germans on, the, uh, on that front in World War I. Um, and a lot of people were unhappy with the situation in Russia at that point. And so um, the Tsar abdicates and a new provisional government shows up. It's not um, it's not a communist government at all at that point. Um, and then it's led by a guy named Kerensky, not Lenin. Um, and then it lasts under a year. And then there is a second revolution um, that is led by the Bolshevik Party, um, which is the party of Lenin. Um, As we know it, and it topples the provisional government, the provisional government flees to the West. um, And the um, Bolsheviks establish the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and then, on top of that the Soviet Union. Um, And so we're still talking about World War One here. Um, The the new Soviet Union is not welcomed by the allies um, at all um not welcomed by france or england or the united states in fact those countries actually invade the soviet union that's something that we don't really um hear about often in history is that there were american troops that actually invaded the soviet union and british troops and french troops Um, american troops landed in a city called vladivostok which is on the very far east it's closer to um korea than it is to germany um it's literally just across the border Um, but american troops marched down there um and, and British troops landed up in the north, and um, there was a group called the Czechoslovak Legion that um, kind of tore through the center of the country. Um, and it's part of the Russian Civil War, and so you have Bolshevik forces that are fighting forces that were loyal to the Tsar, the white forces, or the, the white army opposed the Red Army, um, and the West is helping the, the whites. Um, and in this context, the Bolsheviks execute the Tsar and his family um, because the Czechoslovak Legion is closing in on them. Um, and so relations with between the Soviet Union and the West don't start off very well at all. <laughs> um, eventually, the Soviets win that war and the whites are expelled. Um, they go there's a there's a there's a big white diaspora in, in northern China and um, in, in the United States and in kind of the Western countries as well. Um, that's how that happens. And then obviously you have the rise of, um, national socialism in Germany. It's a different kind of socialism than what we talk about now. So equating the two is, um, incorrect. It's inappropriate. Um, but you have Hitler rising there. National socialism is fundamentally opposed to Soviet communism. Um, and then that war boils over, um, you know, world war II happens. Um, we're allied with the Soviet union. Um, right up to the end of it. Um, And then we divide along those lines. So that's, that's where I see um, the origins of the Cold War is really coming out of um, the immediate aftermath of World War Two, with a big gradual build up to that point. Um, So that's where I think it starts.
0: So how long do you predict our vitriol towards Russia or communism or anything related to the USSR, let's just say, roughly. How long does that stigma last
1: in your mind? Um, I don't think it will ever go away. Um, I think that there are a lot of reasons to be, um, to have kind of that, um, or aspects of that mindset. You know, there's a lot of um, horrendous human rights abuses that happened in the Soviet Union that we should. Um, Definitely address, you know, and acknowledge that, and not um, shy away from that. Um, there's instances of um, genocide um, that is it's kind of debated in some academic circles. Um, it's called the Holodomor in Ukraine um, that were uh, that happened under uh, Stalin's Soviet Union. Um, you know, freedom of expression was limited, and all, all sorts of stuff. So it's it's. I think that that kind of um rhetoric will continue i'm not sure how helpful that is in um mending relations with russia and um and kind of building a path forward um but i think that it will continue um, for a good long while if it ever goes away well i'll tell
0: you what ethan there's a lot more we can talk about but at least as an excuse to force myself to talk to you more because there's so much for me to learn from you. Let's call the podcast here, and then if you want to talk again in the future, I know there's much more we can chat about, whether it's revolution, as you talked about, or even another sharp pivot to Middle Eastern studies, uh, we can dive into those as well. Uh, but I think this is a, a solid, digestible conversation from the nuclear world to the what could have been nuclear wars
1: sure sounds good to me yeah it's been fun talking
0: absolutely thank you for talking with me thank you for coming on and like i said i am absolutely looking forward to talking to you again
1: i am too we got a lot to look forward to (laughs) perfect thanks ethan